Can our claims for God's existence stand up against a rebuttal by an atheist? I'm going to respond to an atheist email today on BibleStudyPodcast.org, starting now. Hello and welcome to BibleStudyPodcast.org. Today is Wednesday, September the 19th. I'm your host, Toby Logsdon. And of course, on Wednesdays, we discuss cultural issues, apologetics, and, you know, just whatever else comes up. And this week in particular, we are responding to an email that I received from an atheist. He and I had been kind of going back and forth through email, you know, discussing various proofs for God's existence. And what I asked him to do was listen to uh, the lessons that we did on Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 20, parts 1, 2, and 3, and uh, to let me know what he thought. And so he wrote me back and shared his thoughts on those podcasts with me. And so I'm going to be responding to that today in today's lesson to hopefully show you guys how to stand up for your faith and how to defend your beliefs as well. But I hope you guys are having a great week. You know, this has been an all right week for me. I've got a lot of reading to do uh, this this semester. I just, you know, did the calculation last week and I figured I have approximately 3,000 pages to read for school this semester. So if you guys could keep me in prayer about that, uh, not only that uh, I would have the mental awareness to be able to keep my mental focus, uh, just not only to have my, you know, concentration on what I'm reading, but also, you know, just to uh, to keep the motivation in order to, to get through the semester. And because, man, when you look at 3,000 pages, it looks like you have to scale this unbelievably big mountain. But uh, anyway, this Saturday, I'm going to Christian Music Day at Carowinds here in North Carolina, and we're going to see Reliant K, Barlow Girl, Toby Mac, Thousand Foot Crutch, and The Wedding. And man, that is going to feel so good after I've been cramming all this information into my head all week. I can't wait to have just a few hours to go and, and relax and listen to some some good music. Of course, I had mentioned that we are going to be starting a new series on the book of Galatians. That is going to start next Thursday. And what I'm going to try to do, I can't make any promises yet because I still have a little bit of, of experimenting to do here with this. But what I'm going to try to do is put it in a video format. So for those of you who have iPods that have video, you know, you'll be able to watch the sermons being delivered instead of just listening. And of course, if you have a, an iPod that doesn't have video, or if you listen to us through something else that doesn't have video, I want to be able to make that available in, um, in audio only as well. So, uh, I, you know, like I said, I can't make any promises, but I'm going to try to put that in video for you guys. But anyway... Let's go ahead and get started with our lesson today. If you'll remember, uh, last week I issued a challenge to an atheist to find one piece of bad science in the Bible. To be honest, I was a little bit surprised that he actually responded. So I wanted to go ahead and share that with you guys. The verse that he gave me is James 5.17, which reads, Elias, or Elijah, was a man subject to like passions as we are, and he prayed earnestly that it might not rain, and it rained not on the earth by the space of three years and six months. Now, I personally prefer uh, the New American Standard Version and what that says. Let me go ahead and read that for you real quick. 
The New American Standard reads, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the earth for three years and six months. Well, Stephen is quick to point out this is bad science. If it didn't rain for three and a half years, then all life on the planet would die. And of course, I don't deny that all life on the planet would die if uh, if there was no rain for three and a half years. However, this verse is referring back to something that was reported in 1 Kings chapter 17 verse 1 through uh 19 a little bit little bit into chapter 19 and this is only referring to the land of Israel here in the book of 1 Kings and that is what James is referring back to so to say that it did not rain on the earth for 3 years and 6 months is kind of a figure of speech it didn't rain on the earth in Israel and that's what he's talking about and that's a figure of speech that we use here today in our culture as well will refer to something the way we perceive it, not the way it actually is. For example, we talk about the sun rising. Well, we all know that the sun isn't really rising, but yet we call it a sunrise. It's not uncommon for us to say, the land is so dry. Well, what land are we talking to? Are we talking about land in general? The thing with this verse is, it's not referring to the entire earth. It's only talking about a very specific part of the earth. So this isn't saying that the whole earth didn't get any rain for three and a half years. So you can't really say it's bad science. And not only that, but this argument that this is bad science presupposes naturalism. It presupposes that even if it didn't rain on the whole earth for three and a half years, that God couldn't somehow sustain the earth or keep life on the earth alive. And finally, uh, my last point here is that the longest drought on history in the earth is in the Atacama Desert in the country of Chile. And it had a drought, not one drop of rain for 400 years from 1571 until 1971. This is the driest place on earth. It didn't have rain for 400 years. And guess what? More than a million people were living in that land anyway. So what you have here from the book of James is not bad science. So Stephen, I hope you're a man of your word because I think this is a perfectly rational answer. I have logically and rationally explained what this means and how this is not bad science. And if you're going to be a man of your word, then you need to tell me where you live because I need to find a church for you to start going to this Sunday and next Sunday. But anyway, uh, I'm not going to waste any more time with that. The challenge has been answered. I have responded to it. Let's see if you're a man of your word. I need to know where you live, Stephen. But anyway, moving on to another email that I've received from an atheist. And this is actually the email which is going to be the center of our focus today. This is the one that I'm responding to uh, about the proofs of God's existence. So let's go ahead and take a look at what he's written. And he wrote me a kind of lengthy email, so I'm just taking some highlights out of there and responding to those highlights. The first thing that he responds to is me saying, God has wrath because no sin can go unpunished, and those who deny his existence are sinners and will therefore be punished. He goes on saying, if you're talking about atheists not going to heaven when they die, then this really doesn't bother us, since we don't believe in an afterlife. This kind of statement is considered an empty threat. The only people this argument will affect is people who are already believers who may want to save non-believers to do their best not to sin. 
Okay, well, in response to that, first of all, this is at the very least a case of severe misunderstanding, and at worst, it's a straw man fallacy. We as Christians don't believe that acknowledging God's existence is sufficient for justification, and I never said that acknowledging God's existence is all you need to do in order to be saved, that is, to escape judgment. Nor do we assert that one is only a sinner if they deny God's existence. Rather, we assert that, yes, sin renders us all corrupted as human beings. Every person on the planet is a sinner, believers and non-believers alike. Because God himself is the standard of righteousness, every sin is thus an act of treason against God, and thus every sin committed is an offense toward God personally. Because God is both infinite and eternal, his worth is infinite and eternal. Thus, to set things straight with God, somebody has to repay that debt. Because God is infinite in his worth, however, it would take an infinite time sequence to repay the debt that we owe him for the sin that we committed against him. And only an infinite and eternal consequence for sin can satisfy an infinite and eternal God. And that's why Jesus, who is also eternal and infinite, must be the one to have paid our sins in full. Now, you say that this argument will only affect people who are already believers. This is the fallacy of begging the question. You're assuming your conclusion uh, that the judgment won't affect you in your premises. But anyway, you know, if I'm right and God exists, then it will affect you whether you choose to believe it or whether you choose to stick your fingers in your ears and scream la 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 as loud as you can. However, believing in God just in case he really exists, uh, which is called Pascal's wager, doesn't work either. If I bury $10 per week in my backyard just in case the economy crashes, do I really believe that the economy is going to crash? You know, of course not, because if I did, I'd be burying all of my money in my backyard. And that's why Pascal's wager doesn't constitute genuine belief. So this final judgment will indeed affect you whether you believe in God or not. So again, the reason this argument doesn't work is it's a straw man fallacy. You know, it work at worst case and you know best cases, you just totally misunderstood anything I, I said. Now the next argument that he brings up is because the Bible says so. If you're going to say the Bible is true, then what about all the contradictions, incorrect facts, and morally dubious advice it gives? I know you have attempted to answer some of these points in other podcasts, but I feel that you have only been partially successful in doing this. Well, David, you've made your argument based on the presupposition that the Bible contains contradictions, incorrect facts, and morally dubious advice, but you've done nothing at all to substantiate your argument. You know, I'll, I'll offer you the same challenge I've offered this other atheist, you know, with whom I've been exchanging emails. If you can give me one example of one contradiction or incorrect fact contained within the Bible, and I am unable to resolve it, I will publicly apologize and admit that such a contradiction or or incorrect fact cannot be uh, resolved. You know, hit me with your best shot. Find one example, you know, for either category. In fact, I'll even take down this very podcast that I'm recording right now if you can substantiate your claim sufficiently. But if I am able to logically and rationally resolve your example, I'll ask that you tell me what city you live in, and I'll find a church in your area which you must attend for two Sundays. So, you know, as the saying goes... Put your money where your mouth is. Um, but as far as there being morally dubious advice in the Bible, let me ask you, what makes something morally dubious? You know, 
Is it your own personal judgment or something that is culturally universal? Because if it's your own judgment, you're just being arbitrary. Because what might be seen as morally dubious to you might seem morally pleasing to somebody else. So uh, anyway, we'll, we'll touch more on this in just a minute. The next thing he's, he quotes me as saying is that everything in nature has a cause. And his response to that is, yes, although there is one possible exception, the Big Bang. We'll probably never know how the Big Bang came about as the known laws of physics break down when approaching the time of the Big Bang. Well, David, um, this is this is what you're saying. Everything has a cause except for one possible exception, the Big Bang. Really? And, and, and what brings you to that conclusion? Do you have any empirical or rational reason for believing that an effect can be without a cause? Of course you don't, because all effects have a cause. To argue otherwise would... Um, not only be a case of having a very wild imagination, but it's also a prime example of a case of the fallacy of special pleading. Further, if the laws of physics break down when we trace back to the time of the Big Bang, we should also acknowledge the likelihood that it was the Big Bang which caused the laws of physics to exist in the first place. Hey, you know, I believe in the Big Bang too. I believe that God spoke and bang, things existed, including the laws of physics. You know, and, and finally, your statement that we will probably never know how the Big Bang came about necessarily presupposes that science is able to prove everything, since you deny any alternative non-scientific explanations. You even go so far as to deny logic entirely by asserting that it's possible that nothing caused something to happen, or that, you know, something came out of nothing. However, to dismiss non-scientific evidence, such as logic and philosophy, a priori assumes that there is a possible scientific means of proving anything and everything. But there are myriad things which science cannot prove. For example, I've been exercising and changing my diet over the past month or so, and I've lost close to 20 pounds. Can I scientifically prove this in retrospect? You know, no, I can't because I didn't create any evidence. I didn't take a picture of the scale from before the previous month, and uh, and thus I have no empirically valid way of proving what the scale read before I started exercising and changing my diet. But in order to determine if what I'm saying is true, the only thing you would have is my own personal witness and my testimony. The same holds true of the Bible. We cannot scientifically prove that Jesus performed miracles. For example, just as we cannot scientifically prove that Christians were fed to lions in the first and second centuries. Well, we must examine the credibility of the source of such claims, and then if the source is credible, we have reason to believe them. If the credibility of the source is questionable, we have good reason to question their testimony. But if testimony relied solely on scientific support, then, you know, we may as well go ahead and set free every person who has ever been found guilty in a court of law for a crime which was uh, based on circumstantial evidence. But of course, that's never going to happen because circumstantial evidence has been deemed to be credible. And the first thing that an attorney in the courtroom will do will try to render the witness uncredible or not, not, uh, not worthy of bearing testimony. So, um, you know, your whole argument there doesn't work. Anyway, moving on. Uh, then he quotes me as saying, what caused God to exist? Nothing. He is eternal, timeless, and had no beginning. And he responds to that by saying, well, this may be true if there is a God, but where's your proof? Is it a book written by scholars thousands of years ago? Perhaps it's the words of a certain man born of a virgin 2,000 years ago? Sorry, but for atheists, this isn't good enough. You need demonstrable proof, not folklore and hearsay. 
well, I never asserted that we should believe that God exists because the Bible says so. I recognize that that is circular reasoning, but what you have here is a straw man fallacy because I believe that the evidence for God's existence is found in nature and in creation. The Bible presupposes a belief in God. It presupposes that the reader is going to already believe in God when they open the words of the Bible. And for that reason, it never even bothers trying to prove that God exists. It presupposes his existence. Further, you know, the proof for God's existence has been offered and it is plenty. You have simply ignored it because you don't feel that it's sufficiently quote unquote scientific. You can't explain why anything exists. You just presuppose that it's possible for an effect to be generated without a cause. Well, how scientific is that? That's a perfect example of why it takes more faith to be an atheist than it takes to believe that God exists. The next thing he quotes me as saying is, all a skeptic can do is claim that the universe never began to exist. And he responds to that by saying, wrong. It's obvious from the Big Bang that all the matter in the universe originated from one point in time and space. In fact, science suggests that time itself began with the Big Bang, as time is a consequence of the curvature of space caused by gravity. So in fact, what a skeptic would claim is that the universe and time begin at the same moment. Well, first of all, if you're going to call yourself a skeptic, uh, that's a self-defeating worldview in and of itself because the skeptic is uh, skeptical of everything except skepticism. But to answer you more specifically, you know, why should anyone believe that time began at the same time as the universe? Only if nothing existed prior to the Big Bang, no material, no nothing, could time have begun at the beginning of the universe. The fact remains that you're perfectly content in believing that it's possible for something to have come from nothing, and this assumes that everything is material. Yet that's a self-defeating philosophy because your assumption is a non-material assumption that everything is material. Uh, you know, and at this point in a conversation, I would typically say something like, you know, I was hoping to have a, a rational and logical discussion here. Uh, how about if we just go out for some pizza and talk about football instead? Anyway, moving on. Uh, the next thing he quotes me as saying is, so why does anything exist? And he responds to this by saying, I don't know, but I certainly don't believe that an invisible magic man in the sky made everything because there's no evidence to suggest that. Prove me wrong. And again, the error here is that you're presupposing that everything is scientifically demonstrable, but we can't scientifically demonstrate that everything can be scientifically demonstrated, which renders it a self-defeating worldview. And again, you know, you've been presented with the evidence. You've just chosen to ignore it, thus forsaking reason and only believing what is scientifically demonstrable. So we're starting to see kind of a, a little bit of a pattern here, you know, that relying on science for our knowledge doesn't exactly work. Of course, we can learn something from science, but science can't prove everything. Anyway, moving on. The next thing he quotes me as saying is, Helen Keller said she had always been aware of a spirit before being told about God. Uh, first of all, I think you just misrepresented a little bit what I said. I didn't say that it was a spirit she was aware of. It was the existence of God, which she claimed to have been aware of. But anyway, then he responds to that by saying, so you're saying that because a 10-year-old has independently come to the conclusion that there is a God, she must be right. Does that mean everything she said was right? Are you aware that she also said around the very same time that Jesus didn't walk on water, but that he swam? Was she right on this point too? I will be very interested to hear your answer on this as this puts you in a catch-22 situation. Well, first of all, I wasn't referring to Helen Keller as an authority on all matters, which is perfectly obvious to everyone and anyone who listened to that lesson, except for 
you, apparently. Rather, I referred to Helen Keller as an example that God's existence is inherently obvious because there's really nobody else in, in recent history who can serve as an illustration of a person who is essentially a tabula rasa. And, of course, that is a, a clean slate, somebody who has no prior learned cultural or academic knowledge. She, she's a perfect example of a tabula rasa, but I never acknowledged that she was an authority in all religious or interpretive matters. Uh, it is possible for a person who is wrong about the way in which they interpret the Bible to make a correct statement. For example, you know, Muslims believe that God exists, but they misinterpret the rest of the Bible. Just because they believe that God exists, does that mean that they get everything else right also? You know, of course not. And this is just an absolutely ridiculous uh, rebuttal that you've offered here, to be honest, David. But um, anyway, I'd be curious to find out where the catch-22 is. I, I honestly just don't see it. The next thing he comes to, and th this is going to be the last point we discuss, is using the moral law to prove that God exists. And he responds to this by saying, The statement that there is an absolute moral law is wrong. Most people agree on a lot of things, such as your argument of decapitating healthy babies being wrong. However, there are plenty of issues that people disagree on, such as whether it is wrong to discourage homosexuality. As for your statement, if you believe in evolution, then you believe in removing the weakest link and therefore would have no problem killing your own baby. I am quite simply appalled. If you genuinely believe this, then you are totally deluded. As a humanist, I find this comment deeply offensive. And that's all in uh, in capital letters. At the very least, you should be able to see that saying inflammatory comments like this is unchristian of you. I also find it ironic that at the end of the podcast, you try to convince non-believers into believing by saying that if you suppress the truth of God, then you will be punished by him. Trying to bully people into believing by saying, believe what we believe and you will be eternally rewarded when you die. Disbelieve and you will be eternally punished would also be considered morally wrong by most people. Well, you just said that there is no such thing as an absolute moral law, yet you're deeply appalled. You found my comments deeply offensive. Well, why? Did I say something that was immoral? Was it absolutely immoral? You know, again, I have to ask, what makes anything immoral? What makes bullying immoral? What makes killing an innocent baby immoral? How do you arrive at the conclusion that anything at all is immoral? Is it your own personal judgment? Do you hold me as a Christian to a different standard than everyone else? If so, why? You know, you said this is unchristian of me. So, you know, am I on a different standard than you? And who defines that standard? Is it you? Let me ask you this, David. If we were in a building together, and I were to find out that there was a bomb in the building, and I was the only person to know, would I be immoral to tell you and everyone else in the building that you will die if you do not exit the building with me? Would that be immoral of me? Of course not. In fact, that would be the most ethical thing that I could do in such a situation. So how then is what I said immoral? How is uh, telling you that if you don't accept Jesus as your Savior immoral? And again, is it only immoral because you say so? Let me ask you this. One more question. What if there existed a whole society in which there were A-class citizens and B-class citizens, and the A-class citizens were encouraged to beat and kill the B-class citizens? As an outsider of that society, would you deem the actions of the A-class citizens immoral, even though they find it perfectly fine? You see, morality is not culture-specific. You and I both inherently know that such an act would be immoral. 
The fact is that the act of killing one's own baby should be appalling. You should be appalled by that because you have what's called the moral law written on your heart. However, if moral judgments are arbitrarily determined, then your determination that that would be immoral really carries no weight. You know, I've seen and heard atheists say that there would be nothing morally wrong with decapitating a baby, but, you know, that such an act would be unpleasant nonetheless because we're culturally programmed to find such an act unpleasant. You know, why would an atheist make such an assertion? Why would they say that? I'll tell you why. It's because they realize that if they appeal to universally recognized morality, then they know they must acknowledge that there must be a source which serves as a standard of moral conduct. Where there's a moral law, there must be a moral law giver. Of course, that's what God is. That's who God is. So, anyway... One final uh, statement that I have to make is that you just said that what I said was immoral, yet you started off your rebuttal by saying there's no such thing as an absolute moral law. So do you see how you're contradicting yourself there, David? Anyway, that's all the time we have for today. Thank you all so much for listening today. I do hope that you've learned a little bit about defending your faith. And, uh, you know, it is important to study our worldview and why we believe what we believe. And that applies to both atheists and Christians. And I hope you guys caught on to that this week. I want to remind you that this is a listener-supported ministry, and I want to thank everybody who has helped us to pay our server costs for this past month. Uh, We needed it more than you realized this past week. Anyway, thank you guys for listening. I will see you all next week. God bless you, and keep growing closer to Jesus.